Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. The Guardian. Hello and welcome to the Guardian Books podcast with me, Richard Lee. And me, Claire Armistead. This week, we speak to two of this year's winners of the Costa Prize for the most enjoyable books of the year. Jonathan Coe, who took the Costa Novel Award, is no stranger to this podcast. We'll be talking to him later about his highly topical novel, Middle England, which begs the question, how on earth do you make Brexit enjoyable? But first, we welcome Sarah Collins, a former barrister who won the first novel award with a very different sort of tale. The Confessions of Franny Langton is the story of a 19th century trial, where a former slave turned ladies' maid is accused of murdering her employers. Claire began by asking Sarah to read from the book as we are introduced to Franny for the first time. My trial starts the way my life did, a squall of elbows and shoving and spit. From the prisoner's hold, they take me through the gallery, down the stairs, and past the table crawling with barristers and clerks. Around me, a river of faces in flood, their mutters rising, blending with the lawyer's whispers. A noise that hums with all the spite of bees in a bush. Heads turn as I enter, every eye a skewer. I duck my head, parrot my boots, grip my hands to stop their awful trembling. It seems all of London is here, but then murder is the story this city likes best. All of them swollen into the same mood. All of them in a stir about the sensation excited by these most ferocious murders. Those were the words of the Morning Chronicle, itself in the business of harvesting that very sensation like an ink-black crop. I don't make a habit of reading what the broadsheets say about me, for newspapers are like a mirror I saw once in a fair near the Strand that stretched my reflection like a rack, gave me two heads, so I almost didn't know myself. If you've ever had the misfortune to be written about, you know what I mean. But there are turnkeys at Newgate who read them at you for sport. Precious little you can do to get away. When they see I'm not moving, they shove me forward with the flats of their hands and I shiver despite the heat, fumble my way down the steps. Murderer. The word follows me. Murderer. The mulatta murderess. Thank you very much. Uh, Now, hearing you read that passage um, brought home to me again how incredibly current it seems, even though we're in 1826. I mean, we're talking about the distortion of identity by the media. Oh, hey, what could be more topical in this at the beginning of 2020? Yes, and alternative facts. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Was that was that what you set out to do? No, I mean, it's funny. I'm not really sure to what extent you can be setting out to do anything when you're writing a novel apart from conjuring up a character and trying to get to know them as you develop their predicament. What I really wanted to do was to come up with a page-turning story, and I think the obligation of a novelist 
to a reader has to prioritize story. Um, that feeling of not being able to sleep until you know how something has turned out. Just as simple as that and also as difficult. But I was writing the story during a very interesting period of time. So I was casting myself back to the early 19th century, but this was during 2015, 2016. So I was also well aware of um, developments on both sides of the Atlantic. And I, I was definitely imbued with a mounting sense of anger at how very little progress we had actually made in relation to all of the things I was writing about from an early 19th century perspective. So women's rights and sexuality and um, even the origins of misguided race science as a justification for even more misguided um, policies and political initiatives. Um, none of it although we had been patting ourselves on the back as having emerged into a post-racial society, had actually really moved on that far when you got down to the nitty-gritty of it. So let's just um, go back into the story, the plot of the story, which is that, as we've just heard, Franny is in the dock. She's been accused of murder. And it, and the, the framing is that in order to provide herself with some sort of a defence, she has to... Um, provide a story of it for her defence lawyer and that then takes us back to Jamaica where she grew up on a plantation um, yes. one of the things I was very aware of was the need for someone to comment on what Jean Reese had done because you know her book was an act of restorative justice she was trying to reimagine the perspective of the mad woman in the attic um, she did a wonderful um sort of fleshing out job, if you like, of that. Very few people, I think, have picked up on the fact that it does a disservice to the black female characters. Um, so, you know, the, the, the black female characters who come to mind in that book are Amelie, who is the kind of sexual temptress, and I think her name is Christophine, the Obia woman, um, who sort of pops up every now and again to dispense, you know, a few aphorisms and then disappears. And, and I, I, I've always been left with the sense that there was still something in that balance that could be redressed. And that was looking at those characters. At trying to dig beneath those stereotypes. Um, one of the questions I asked myself, which led to my own novel, was, but what if the maid, instead of being the sexual temptress, had been the most intelligent person in the room? Um, and she's also of mixed heritage, exactly. which is what mulatta means. So yes. in, in a way, you do dispense of, of the black, her black uh, carer, Right at the beginning, don't you? She she gets yes. She gets hanged. <laughs> yes, <laughs> and this yeah. woman who is the sort of um, child of both cultures is the one who survives. Yes, and she is torn between those cultures. One of the things that was interesting to me in exploring Franny was the fact that she does have purchase in both cultures, although it's much more difficult for her to identify with the white culture. Um, but what her learning and her education does is give her a strong yearning to identify with one more than the other. And that's a sort of question about this whole wonderful tradition of, of um, Western literature, isn't it? Um, uh, Franny being steeped in that, the price she has to pay for it, um, is this idea that she comes to question her own identity. She has to come to terms with it, um, mm. which is very difficult to do in early 19th century England, in particular when all of the messages are um, that the black side of her is less than human. 
Yes, and that this brings us on to the sort of proto eugenics that's going on, which it was is actually based on real a, a real book that was written. Yes, I didn't allow myself to speculate very much about all of that because there wouldn't have been any point. First of all, it was more horrific than I could ever have imagined. Have imagined, so there was no need to call on imagination. Um, but also, in order to make the point, um, I felt it was necessary to be entirely accurate about that, so that there couldn't be any argument about it. Um, the thing that surprised me the most was how much material there was about the experimentation, if you could call it that, using the sort of early scientific method which was developing at the time by some of the leading thinkers of the Enlightenment into this question. Of whether about whites whether black and blacks were the, were, same, human, were, were the, the same, same, species. Race, same species. Exactly. And a lot of energy and intellect was devoted to this debate. Um, you know, you had um, Voltaire flying off to Paris to examine a little albino boy and Hume writing essays about whether or not black people could rise above the intellect of a parrot um, and Jefferson, you know, speculating on on the humanity of black people. And of course, it was all tied to the developing reliance on slavery as um, as a source of income and capital. Um, and it was this marvelous example I found of the development of, of the science being entirely self-serving and therefore entirely mistaken. Um, and then also that question leads to whether or not um, the development of history as a science was entirely self-serving mm. and entirely mistaken. And, well. uh, but also the question about is science actually a f another form of fiction? Yes, yes. Because if it's, if it's misfounded, then it is. Absolutely. <laughs> is everything at the end of the day narrative? Um, and if so, does that mean that all of these narratives which have gone to the development of our sense of ourselves and our world have been manipulated by the people who had the power to control them, namely, you know, the sort of great white men of history? So against this huge weight of history, you pit the figure of Franny, who is a fantastic character. I, Thank I, you. I, I mean, it, I, I have to say, I'm very delighted, if only by you, by your Costa win, just to see Franny <laughs> being, being properly rewarded. Thank you so much. I mean, yes, it was a tall order pitting Franny against against the great weight of history and science. But um, I think there are ways in which she manages to carve out a triumph for herself in the end. And she's she's taught to read for cynical purposes, but she takes to it. Um, but she she also has a she uses aphorisms. You allow her to have a, a, aphorisms, which you could say are sort of out of what one would expect from her. For example, yes. no doubt you think this will be one of those slave histories all sugared over with misery and despair, but who'd want to read one of those? Yes, and I think that was deliberate. And so far I haven't been accused of anachronism because I think what is universal about human experience is our response to things. You know, anger doesn't change very much from, from era to era, nor does love, nor does grief. And so allowing her to kind of manifest the anger that would have been a logical response um, to what was done to her, I think, helps the character to come alive. You know, I, I um, remember something Toni Morrison said, that you can't change the future, but you can change the past. And that's the kind of power of historical fiction, that we're, we're constrained to be accurate in relation to events. But there is such um, fertile ground to explore when it comes to human emotion. And one of the things I think that's been missing is this exploration of female anger and the anger of black women in particular in, in relation to historical fiction, which obviously Toni Morrison did well. So the kind of the aphoristic expressions that Franny allows herself are 
are kind of geared towards giving some expression to that. You know, she also says um, a man writes to separate himself from the common history. A woman writes to try to join it. It's the anger of exclusion and the anger of the excluded. Those were the bits that I found um, probably the most fun to write, actually. There's an awful lot of reading in the backstory of this, in the background. You, you, you have worked as a lawyer for 17 years. You have five children. <laughs> I know. <laughs> How do you manage How to do How did I ever do reading? any of this? <laughs> um, first of all, they were 17 very miserable years because the whole time I worked as a lawyer, I knew I wanted nothing more than to write. Um, I had fallen in love with reading very early and it was a love that never left me. Um, And I'd been part of the conversation as a reader for so long, so filled with admiration for books that had changed my life that I I really did have a very strong urge to, you know, to join the other side of it and to try to write something myself. But then I had to raise five children. And um, so their role in 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 helping me to get published was essentially to start growing up and moving out. Um, By the time my youngest was secondary school age and I had given up work, I um, finally had enough time on my hands and I knew if I didn't do it then you know I I sort of hit the big 4-0 birthday a few years before that if I didn't do it then time would probably run out. So just the the last thing I wanted to talk about a little bit is about your imagery which I was really really struck and you know we talked about Franny's aphorisms but the, uh, the sort of your use of words in showing her coming into a literary consciousness, it's not that she wasn't conscious before, is really quite original. For example, when she first sees herself in a mirror and she says, there I was stamping towards myself like a wild creature, my own face darting about on the surface like a fish I couldn't catch. Yes. Where, I mean, that is a really brilliant piece of evocation. Oh, Where did you. that come from? I mean... <laughs> Um, days and days of hard work. I mean, they were all very hard won, these metaphors, because, you know, you wanted to come to life on the page. But I think the more lively it is on the page, the more it's probably depleted the author in getting there. It really was a lot of hard work. But what I wanted was, and that's one of the early images of Franny, this sense of a really quick intelligence that was very difficult to pin down, that was wide ranging and that was fascinating. Um, And that had all the energy of something that was being suppressed, but ultimately couldn't be suppressed. And so I wanted the um, the figurative language of the novel to have the same kind of punch and the same kind of power. But I wish it all came. You know, I've read metaphor is a way of illuminating the truth by putting two you know, very different things together. And I I really do believe in that. What did it feel like when you heard you'd won the debut novel of the year? It still hasn't sunk in. Um, I am obviously immensely gratified, but also I'm still walking around in a state of utter disbelief. Um, you know, it's it's a prize that I have watched as an avid reader for so long. So many of my favourite novelists have been short, uh, shortlisted and awarded the same prize. That, uh, you know, first of all, to join the tradition of published writers at all was such a huge privilege. But to join it in this fashion is something I don't think I'll ever recover from. Sarah Collins. The Confessions of Franny Langton is published by Viking Penguin in the UK and Harper in the US. After the break, we'll be speaking to Jonathan Coe and discussing Costa's recipe for an enjoyable read. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. 
we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Welcome back to the Guardian Books podcast. Jonathan Coe burst onto the scene in 1994 with What a Carve-Up, a satirical take on Thatcher's Britain. His sixth novel, The Rotters Club, published in 2001, went back a decade earlier, introducing us to a group of teenage wannabes growing up in the Midlands in the 1970s. The Trotter brothers reappeared, along with some of their friends, in his 2004 sequel, The Closed Circle. Now Coe has taken the Costa Novel Award with Middle England, which brings the Trotters and their gang into the era of Brexit. When he came to the studio, he began by introducing us to the next Trotter generation, Sophie whose marital problems have a strange symmetry with the paroxysms of Britain's departure from the EU. A couple might decide to separate for all sorts of reasons. Adultery, cruelty, domestic abuse, lack of sex. But a difference of opinion over whether Britain should be a member of the European Union or not seemed absurd. It was absurd. And yet Sophie knew deep down that it had not so much been a reason as a tipping point. Ian had reacted, to her mind, So bizarrely to the referendum result, with such gleeful, infantile triumphalism, he kept using the word freedom as if he were the citizen of a tiny African country that had finally won independence from its colonial oppressor, that for the first time she genuinely realised that she no longer understood why her husband thought and felt the way that he did. At the same time, she herself had been possessed by the immediate sense that morning that a small but important part of her own identity her modern, layered, multiple identity, had been taken away from her. During their first session a few weeks later, their relationship counsellor, Lorna, told them that many of the couples she was seeing at the moment had mentioned Brexit as a key factor in their growing estrangement. I usually start by asking each of you the same question, she said. Sophie, why are you so angry that Ian voted leave? And Ian, why are you so angry that Sophie voted remain? Sophie had thought for a long time before answering. I suppose it's because it made me think that as a person, he's not as open as I thought he was, that his basic model for relationships comes down to antagonism and competition, not cooperation. Lorna had nodded and turned to Ian, who'd answered, It makes me think that she's very naive, that she lives in a bubble and can't see how other people around her might have a different opinion to hers. And this gives her a certain attitude, an attitude of moral superiority. To which Lorna had said, What's interesting about both of those answers is that neither of you mentioned politics, as if the referendum wasn't about Europe at all. Maybe something much more fundamental and personal was going on, which is why this might be a difficult problem to resolve. She had suggested a course of six sessions, but it turned out that she was being optimistic. In fact, they attended nine before admitting defeat and calling it a day. 
Thank you, Jonathan. Um, that is uh, Sophie and Ian, who uh, Sophie is the niece of Benjamin Trotter, who, mm-hmm. who is a character that we first met back in 2001 in the Rotters Club, um, who now is a novelist who has just unlike you, had the <laughs> mild success of getting a long listing on the booker for freaky reasons for a novel that no one would, uh, no serious publisher wanted to publish. But what you have in, in Sophie and Ian's relationship is a reflection of the theme of the book, which is Middle England and how we came to be where we are. Why did you decide to go back to this set of characters all this time later? Well, I had two competing uh, ideas for a new book in my mind in... Um Early 2016, this would have been, I just published uh, number 11, which was uh, a satirical novel about austerity and about the Cameron government and what uh, their policies had done to the country. And um, I was thinking about what to write next. I fancied the idea of doing another uh, political state of the nation-ish novel, but I also was beginning to get the sense at that uh, particular moment that the United Kingdom was building up uh, towards a significant moment, some sort of moment of rupture, some sort of moment, some sort of point of no return. I didn't really realise at that point that it was going to be the referendum campaign that marked that, but uh, I felt that things had become socially so strained in the last uh, five or six years that we were reaching a kind of social breaking point, if you like. So I had a vague idea for a State of the Nation novel, but at the same time, uh, I'd become curious again, to my surprise, about the Rotters Club characters, who were also uh, the close circle characters from the from the first sequel to the book, published in 2004. Normally, when I finish a book and put the final full stop, then the characters leave my imagination completely, and I never even consider going back to them. But because... Benjamin uh, was a such an autobiographical character and The Rotters Club was such an autobiographical book. He and his friends and his family had never quite gone away in that, in that same way and I was starting to feel, as I entered my late 50s, a curiosity about how they were coping with that particular age as well. You know, it, it suddenly became clear to me that these two ideas needn't be in competition, that in fact the State of the Nation book that I wanted to write could also be uh, Rotters Club Volume 3. So um, just to, to recap a little bit on the, the situation, um, the, they all, the central characters met up at King William School, which is a, mm. a fictionalisation of a school you went to, grammar school you went to in Birmingham, which yep. is in the middle of England, hence the title Middle England in a way, although we don't usually use Middle England to mean Birmingham, do we? <laughs> no, no, I've been, I've been publicising the book abroad a lot recently and they're, they're very exercised by this phrase, Middle England, uh, and the translation difficulties it's created. And I do have to explain that it's not, although the book is geographically set in the heart of England, a lot of it, uh, that's not really, really what Middle England means, and Middle England is really uh, an attitude and uh, a political philosophy. Middle England is like the Shire in, uh, in Lord of the Rings. Oh, there's so, quite a lot of, of, of riffing on, on Lord of the Rings. Yeah, well, you know, um, Tolkien to me is uh, a great novelist of the Midlands. That's, that's, I love the Lord of the Rings on many different levels, but, but that's the one I love it on the most, I think, that uh, to me, Frodo and Sam are two uh, kind of provincial Birmingham boys who get called away to do 
great deeds in the wider world and uh, then come back to the Midlands kind of older and wiser and stronger as a result. Oh, a bit like you. <laughs> well, in some ways, yeah. I mean, <laughs> I mean it's, that's interesting that, that you're so influenced by, by The Lord of the Rings because this is, you, you are not a, a fantasy writer. You, you, your writing is sort of social comedy mm. or but bordering on satire. Now, I know mm. what a carve-up was, was described as satire. I would say this is more social comedy yes, than Yes, definitely more social satire. comedy, apart from the, uh, the set-piece dialogues between... Uh, between the political journalist and uh, David Cameron's spin doctor, of which there are five, and which are straight out of Yes Minister or The Thick of It or Veep or something. Well, and, uh, the, the and a knockabout knock involving two clowns. Yes. <laughs> yeah, that's the only kind of surreal touch in the book, but, but that's completely uh, taken from life. Uh, I mean, a few years ago, I met up again with my first school friend from primary school, who I knew when I was five years old, who is now a children's entertainer in the Midlands and uh, has this kind of, for a while, had this strange feud going on with another children's entertainer. And it wasn't as if they were, one was for Brexit and one was for Remain. But uh, that's the only little gloss of uh, unreality I put onto it. The rest of it is all uh, is all pretty much real. The point about that, 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 that knockabout between the two clowns, in a way, is, is, is about a- uncontained anger, isn't it? Mm. Anger that blows up over something that is trivial and then gets completely out of control. Yeah, well, um, another key passage in the book, I think, is the passage where Nahid, the the woman who takes uh, speed awareness courses for miscreant drivers, is talking to Sophie after after they've had the training session, and Sophie has remarked on how angry everybody in in the class seemed to be, and Nahid says, yes, everybody is getting angry these days, and she feels it's because it's one of the most readily accessible emotions, you know, and we're all going around in a state of slight emotional deadness and anomie, and we're, we're desperate to feel something and, and feeling angry, uh, you know, even if it's just a momentary kick of anger at a fellow driver when you're, when you're stuck in a traffic jam or something, it uh, brings your emotions to life. And that's, uh, that's something these days, that's something we need. One of the things that surprised me uh, when I went back to look at the Rosses Club and the Closed Circle, because I had to skim read those books again to make sure that I knew, uh, you know, how to continue the story, is that there's a big riff on this at the beginning of the Closed Circle, which I would have written in 2004, so 15 years ago, where Claire comes back from uh, living in Italy, and the first thing that strikes her about being back in London and bring, being back in England is how angry everybody sees, and there's this kind of constant low-level irritation. And I think that has, you know, built and built uh, and erupted into something quite significant since 2016. So the, the book is called Middle England. It divides into three sections. And the three sections are Merry England, Deep England, and then finally Old England. What is the significance particularly of Deep England? That's not a, a term I'm particularly familiar with. It's a term you find being used uh, by uh, psychogeographers sometimes, film commentators Sometimes uh, it uh, is meant, I think, to describe and evoke those uh, rural or village uh, pockets of England which still exist, which are uh, remote, more than usually cut off from the metropolis and the life of the capital, uh, and where, uh, you know, folklore is still important. Um, a strong sense of uh, English traditions going back, almost having a kind of slightly wicker, wicker manish kind of feel. 
you don't have a lot of um, characters living in who are disaffected because of living in poverty because of having suffered the effects of austerity. Mm. You have a rather likable um, Asian woman and her daughter mm-hmm. who have suffered extreme yeah. poverty. Most of these people are, are, are cross because they are they feel that their the status quo is being threatened. Yeah, I mean, I've, you know, I'm middle class myself and I write best about the middle classes, I think. And um, it's true that uh, many of the characters in the in the book are actually quite well off, but it doesn't seem to make them any more content with their lot. And curious feature of uh, what I've heard Lee voters say over the last three years to me is that when you try to argue with them and say, uh, you know, that uh, we're going to be worse off if we leave the European Union and the economy is going to suffer and this kind of thing, then a lot of the time they will say, well, it's not about money as far as I'm concerned. Uh, at which point, you know, you have to ask in that, in that case, what is it about? You know, I, I think for a lot of the characters in my book, a lot of the Leave voters in my book, uh, they're motivated by, motivated by resentment uh, and a sense of injustice. And as the epigraph to the Deep England section says, a, a sense of loss of privilege, really. Uh, that um, as social attitudes uh, have changed over the last uh, few decades, they've been asked to uh, step aside and make way for you know other people, other voices. The timescale is April 2010 to September 2018, mm. which means that you miss out on what happened in 2019. What yes. what what would it have changed had you been had you been writing it over a slightly later timescale? Do you think? I made the book not just as update as I could, but more up to date than I could really, because I finished writing it in April two thousand eighteen, and the final chapter is set in September two thousand eighteen. So I so I was uh, looking forward tentatively into the future there as as far as I could, um, but I couldn't. You know the referendum result to me, as well as marking the beginning of something, also mark the end of something. And uh, this is really a book about the some of the roots of the Brexit movement and how they led up to uh, June 2016. Um, what's come since then is for another book, I think, and it will take quite a few years before I or any other writer, I think, has enough perspective on it to be able to write about what's happening now because we're entering into a totally new chapter. And, and that, that chapter really started on uh, Friday, 13th of December last year, I think, with, with Johnson getting his majority. I think that that uh, has been the decisive thing. Very finally, wh- when I was thinking about what the, what the take out of it was, I thought it, it occurred to me that actually what it's about is fraternity. And you have fraternity literally in that it's about brothers and sisters yes. and family relationships that are not marital necessarily. Yeah. But it's also about couples who've been a long time together who perhaps not perfectly match, finding a way of co- continuing to be together. Yeah, well, that, that was sort of the best metaphor I could find for what the country now has to do, I think. Uh, you know, there's a lot of talk about healing and bringing the country together and, and so on, and it's not, uh, it's not obvious to me how that is really going to happen if we press ahead with, a, with an ultra-hard Brexit uh, in defiance of the uh, 
of the wishes of 48% of the electorate. But um, if the United Kingdom or even England is going to is going to survive as an entity, then then we're going to have to find a way of burying our differences again and and getting on with it. And a, and a and a couple in their fifties who kind of decide, okay, so we're not perfect for each other, but we've got this far and we've been through this much. Uh, we might as well uh, we might as well battle it out. Uh, is is as good a good a point of comparison as any, I think. So you know, quite downbeat in a way, downbeat in subject matter. Down, it's not doesn't have it doesn't aspire to joy, but it's it's just won the, the a prize which <laughs> is specifically for the most enjoyable novel of the year. That's a real feat to pull. Well, off. I hope it's uh, I hope it's enjoyable. As you say, there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of comedy in the book. And uh, a lot of kind of kindness and gentleness in the book, I think, between the different characters. That's that was one of the things I wanted to try and capture from the texture of uh, daily life. Still, because I think that you know it's easy to forget that all that is going on while we're kind of slagging each other off on Twitter. Um, and it does end on a note of uh, on a note of kind of fragile optimism. Based in mainland Europe. <laughs> uh, based in mainland Europe, uh, with a with a kind of multi-international list of dinner guests gathered around a table in the south of France. And uh, that final chapter is not as realistic as the other chapters. To me, it has a kind of fantasy element to it. Uh, it's like a retreat into the magic forest where, where you know, where things can be worked out in, in non-political ways. Um, but... For me, in the in the short term at the moment, as I said, particularly with the election result of uh, last month, it's a bit hard to see how this is going to play out in a good way in the, over the next few years. Jonathan Coe. Middle England is published by Penguin. The Booker Prize rewards the finest in fiction. The Nobel tries to find the most outstanding work in an ideal direction, while the Pulitzers are looking for distinguished fiction by an American author, preferably dealing with American life. But ever since they were founded in 1971, the Costa Book Awards, formerly the Whitbreads, have been celebrating the most enjoyable books of the year. So, Claire, what exactly is an enjoyable book? Ah, yes. Well, this is the the million-dollar question, isn't it? (laughs) Well, the the, the question that publishers hope will, will, and booksellers hope will amount to a million dollars. Franny Langton's obviously pretty harrowing in its subject matter. Yes. But it is what you might call in old book speak a rollicking read. Um, a page turner. A page turner. So what enjoyable, I think, means really is appealing to a wide and hopefully an extra literary readership. So i.e. the people who don't read books all the time. Yeah, it's might. kind of hard for us to imagine sometimes that there are people who don't read books, but they do exist. They do. And sort of people who, you know, who might buy a book for their mum mm. or or, mm. or choose it for their book group. Um, so it's all about books that will sell and it's in deliberate contradistinction to the booker's finest in fiction. Mm. So because every prize needs to have a bit of a personality of its own. Though the booker was always supposed to be a way of selling more books, but I guess it was always an appeal to the kind of your finer instincts, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, you know, obviously a, a, a great novel will sell a lot of books depending, you know, regardless of, of whether it's higher or lower, but that isn't always the case. Yeah, a bit of brand, <laughs> isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> and But I actually think that the, this Costa, um, although, it, it, you know, you can 
sneer at it. Um, the, it's actually produced some very good winners. So uh, of the book of the year, which is the next stage that um, Jonathan and Sarah will go to, um, the winners, past winners have included Kate Atkinson's Behind the Scenes at the mm. Museum, Andrea Levy's mm. Small Island, Mark Haddon's Curious Incident mm. of the Dog in the Nighttime. Mm. Um, all great books. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. yeah. But I mean, it's not all about fiction, is it? Of these two novels are up against Jasbinda Bilan's novel for children, Asher and the Spirit Bird, Mary Jean Chan's collection of poetry, Flesh, and Jack Fairweather's biography of Witold Pilecki, The Volunteer. So what have judges enjoyed in terms of genre throughout the years? Well, if we're laughing at the, at the term enjoy, the Vitol Pilecki is <laughs> laughing in a fond way. <laughs> this is this is Vitol Pilecki is about a, a, a man who infiltrated himself into Auschwitz in order yes. to report on what was going on on the inside, and then yes. was executed. <laughs> so I mean, it's, again, it's not, it's not obviously. It's not obviously enjoyable, but but uh, you know it's a it's a well told story of it, and it's also an important story. Um, so um, if you're looking at at the at how how it's shaken down over the years, um, the the novels of the year usually win the book of the year. But there's actually more poetry than you'd expect. I did a rough count, and it seems to be thirteen novel novels, five first novels, eight poetry collections, eight. and seven biographies. But the eight poetry collections, four of those eight poetry collections were by famous Seamus and Ted Hughes, even more <laughs> famous Ted Hughes. <laughs> so yes, in fact, so there's certainly a, a, a certain amount of kind of brand quality there, isn't there? I mean, I suppose there's always been some sort of tension between the idea of something enjoyable and something that's really good. Yeah, here's a bit of gossip that hasn't been heard in public before. <laughs> when I, I judged the um, Costa Biography Prize in 2004, and it also handily in, involves Jonathan Coe, who was up for it with his biography of um, the avant-garde novelist B.S. Johnson. Um, it's, it was called, his biography was called Like a Fiery Elephant, and it was written in a sort of B.S. Johnson experimental style. And one of my fellow judges, who shall remain nameless, <laughs> flounced into the room and said, if you're going to argue for the co, I'm walking out. Oh, so I, actually, there was no argument against that. I sort of docilely submitted. Um, and he did go on to win the Samuel Johnson Prize, which actually was a, which is for nonfiction and actually was a, probably a better prize for that book. Although I, you know, I, it was greatly to be admired. I thought it was a great biography. Like all gossip, I think this anecdote is quite telling in that Coe is actually a writer's writer. He's a real stylist and book nerd, as he did, confessed himself just then, who happens to have chosen social comedy as the vehicle for his fiction. And comedy, as we know, rarely wins the Booker Prize. It rarely wins serious literary prizes. Yeah, much, much underrated, isn't it? But do you think he's in with a shout at the Costas? Yeah, absolutely. It's just so topical. And um, it, I think that that sense of something that everybody is thinking about, i.e. it's a subject that resonates, is a very important part of an enjoyable A book. subject in his case we can't hardly avoid. <laughs> yeah, although I have to say, I was talking to someone the other day who thought it might be more enjoyable for for foreign readers who hadn't actually had to live through all the mm. events he's describing mm. <laughs> and to have him, them repeated in such sort of grim detail is it c can be quite dispiriting and unenjoyable. But he's already very big on the continent, isn't he? Yeah, he's, he's massively popular in, in Belgium and France mm. and I think Germany. Mm. Um, and that's that's interesting as well, because I, I think he I, I think I've said this formally that that he, I don't think he's had the recognition he deserves here. And I think that is partly to do with his choice of comedy but also he has a sort of certain sort of um, deadpan style which which too sophisticated for us Brits <laughs> yeah let's say let's put it <laughs> like that and get everybody's backs up <laughs> anyway and Franny Langton is topical in a very different way in that it's a revisionist look at Britain's slaving history and the hypocrisies around race um, which resonate very strongly with 
in this era of, of you know the Windrush scandal, which is all about our mistreatment of people who come from precisely the former colonies that Sarah Collins is writing about. Mm. Uh, I guess also a very interesting novel in, in the age of Me Too as well. We'll find out who'll be crowned the winner of the Costa Book of the Year later this evening, but that's all for this week. Next week we talk to Adam Rutherford, who's examining why racists have a problem with science. If you have any thoughts about this week's episode, get in touch on Twitter, at Guardian Books, or on the podcast page. And remember, you can always subscribe and review us wherever you get your podcasts. But for now, from me, Richard Lee. And me, Claire Armistead. And our producer, Esther Apokujeni. Thanks for listening and goodbye. For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts.